0: Thank you. So, hello, everyone, and welcome to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, presented by me, Tom DeRose. Now, today we're going to be uh, looking back on a recent exhibition that took place at the museum um, called Tracing Freud on the Acropolis. And I'm delighted to say that the curator of the exhibition, Marina Maniadaki, is uh, joining me today um, on the show. So, Marina, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're very welcome. Um, and so we're going to be talking today about this exhibition, and also about um, some of the research and some of the theories and some of the ideas that kind of that kind of percolated through this kind of exhibition process. Um, and what I wanted to do was to start in a well, in a, in a particularly Freudian sense, in a psychoanalytic sense. It starts really at the end of of Freud's engagement with Athens, because because of course Freud. The, the exhibition itself describes a kind of trip that Freud went on to Athens in 1904, right? His only trip to Athens, Marina. Um, but but the kind of jumping off point for this exhibition um, was really a letter that was published, well, over 30 years later, right? Um, called A Disturbance of Memory on the Acropolis. And I want to ask you, first of all, about this about this letter, you know, this famous letter in the Freudian archive and it's reproduced, of course, in the standard edition. So this letter, what were the circumstances behind the writing of this letter? Who was it addressed to? Who was the recipient? And, and what does this letter, this famous letter, um, a disturbance of memory on the Acropolis, what does it describe Marina? Uh, so in
1: 1936. Freud is in his 80s, he's quite frail, he's quite old. Um, Freud very famously exchanged a lot of correspondence with many of his colleagues um, and his contemporaries at the time. and uh, casually he gets invited by poet Victor Bitkowski to produce something, to write something on the occasion of their mutual friend um, French um, friend author, Roman Roland's 70th birthday. And um, Freud's initial response to that is that he is quite bold to produce anything new and that he will politely sort of send a birthday message to Romain Roland that he would be unable to produce anything. Uh, Nevertheless, 10 days after this letter, he produces a uh, short essay, an open letter, rather, Mm -hmm. as you said, called uh, A Distembers of Memory on the Acropolis. And... As he has written elsewhere as well, the letter has nothing to nothing much to do with Roman Roland.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the only thing that actually connects the letter to Roman Roland is that Roland has the same age as uh, Sigmund Freud's younger brother Alexander, his, who accompanied him to his one trip to Athens, which is the subject of uh, that open letter. Um, so in the letter, Freud reminisces. This one time that he almost coincidentally ended uh, up in Athens and gazing towards the sea when he gets up on the uh, Acropolis Hill and standing among all these ancient ruins. Um, he experiences this feeling of what he calls derealization. He, even though his senses tell him that he physically is standing on the Acropolis. Um, among the ruins of the Greek civilization, which is one of his greatest kind of inspirations as well throughout his life, Uh, he cannot believe it. The place feels unreal. It actually reminds him of uh, seeing at something such as the uh, Loch Ness monster. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the letter, he goes on to analyze and try to uh, understand why he felt this way. And he offers a few kind of um, straightforward in, in, in his kind of mind, I think, uh, mm-hmm. explanations. At the beginning, he does note that seeing something with one, one's own eyes is very, very different than hearing or reading about it. Mm. Uh, but he quickly dismisses this as the explanation. He goes on to talk about um, how the possibility of him as a schoolboy doubting the actual existence of the Acropolis, but he quickly dismisses that as well as something not being possible. And then he starts talking about um him actually as a schoolboy and as a child dismissing the possibility of him ever physically visiting the Acropolis. It is out of the realms of possibility as he's as he's growing up, this kind of trip. He comes from a modest background, from um uh, he comes from a place imagining all these amazing travels as a child, but he never kind of thinks he will be able to reach the Acropolis physically and actually stand among these ruins. And before closing the letter, he says, uh, that this feeling of derealization was caused by guilt, uh, for having done something forbidden, uh, which was surpassing his father, Jakob Freud who was uh, from a modest background, he had very limited education uh, and not only he wouldn't have the financial means to go to Athens himself, but also he was a a man of limited education and Athens and the Acropolis could not have meant much to him. Mm. And, and, and Freud at that moment, he stands on the Acropolis with his brother and he's gone such a long way further than, than his father. And this guilt sort of mixes with the joy of him uh, finally standing on the Acropolis. So that's that's the letter.
0: Well, it's wonderful. There's so much, um, so much in that Marina. So much kind of. it's actually it's a very short letter, actually, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. well, very short letter. It's mean, it's a few <laughs> pages long. It's not, you know, compared to the letters we write nowadays. Actually, I'm not sure we really write many letters nowadays. Or so, but the emails that we write nowadays, of course, it's a kind of medium uh, length letter. But there's so much content, isn't there? And there's so much. Um, so much really that touches on, on psychoanalysis and what you've just said there, you know, Freud is famous of course, for, for drawing on personal experience to kind of, um, to illustrate theory, right? I mean, we get that goes back in the interpretation of dreams, of course, is a book that's full of his own dreams. You know, other instances we might think of in the uncanny when he describes kind of wandering around this kind of town in, in Northern Italy and and getting lost and, um, and, you know, we, there's so much, I think, in this story that we'll probably, we'll unpack a little more in a moment. But the, as you said, the the, the what he seems to do in this letter, he tries out a few versions. You know, he has this funny turn, doesn't he? He has this funny turn, you know, is this real or not? You know, tries out a few versions of trying to explain it. Um, and then he comes up with this kind of very Oedipal, Oedipal guilt, right? The kind of, the idea that, you know, if we trace it back from a symptom, you know, we've got the the derealization, you know, that that's the that's what's manifest, that's the symptom. But w- Freud's always looking for the causes, isn't he, of you know, those things. So, you know, this, I imagine him waiting kind of 30 odd years to send this letter. <laughs> it's a lot of thought, although we, we, he may have been working on different versions of it before, and we, we're not sure about that. But, um, but, uh. And suddenly, you know, he sends this letter to a friend, a very well-renowned friend, a Nobel Prize-winning author, um, describing this kind of Oedipal dynamic that, you know, because he's overthrown the father, you know, that's the original act. He's overthrown the father. He's done. He's he's achieved this kind of unconscious desire, this forbidden desire. Gets flooded with a sense of guilt, unconscious sense of guilt, which is transformed into this derealization so suddenly, don't worry, you can enjoy it, you can be here because you're not really here. You know, it's kind of you're not because it's not real, right? Um, I mean, it's a, it's a fabulous kind of uh, bit of mental gymnastics, I think, really, in many ways. And what we've got, um, as you were describing, we've got the father who was a man of modest means, Jewish family that Freud grew up in, on the one hand, and we've also got this kind of Freud growing up as a schoolboy, translating Greek literature, Sophocles, you know, for his maturer, um, being what was called a Philhellene at the time, a lover of Greek culture. Um, so there's this kind of ambivalence between this kind of the Jewish heritage of Freud and the inherited, almost cultural heritage, of ancient Greece, yeah? I think, and Freud's got lots of Greek stuff in his collection, <laughs> isn't he? One of the things I know you wanted to do was to bring out um, some of these pieces, you know, to show this wider fascination that Freud had for Greece. Is there any specific pieces that, that really kind of stood out for you and, and spoke to you when you were thinking about curating this exhibition?
1: Uh, I'm going to pause you then for a second as well and just go back mm. to what you said about oh, yes, please. Freud, uh, Freud thinking about that one, um, pro- potentially preparing different versions of the letter yes, yes. before he wrote it to Romain Roland, and... There are indications that, I mean, one of the first things he says in the letter is that as he's growing older, he's thinking about this trick more and more mm. So we we know, I mean, that he has been thinking about it. And also in uh, Future of an Illusion, he mm. does briefly touch uh, upon that one moment of him standing on the Acropolis and not being able to believe his own eyes um, and the fact that he's standing there. And that's 10, ten years before writing the letter. And he does, I think he does mention that, you know, this is something for a, a, that may have a different explanation. So he doesn't really analyze it, but he does mention it. Interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, he doesn't mention um, the feeling of kind of, in the letter, in the 1936 letter, there's a certain kind of strand of, um, not sadness, sadness, not the word that I'm looking for. Uh, it's, it's nostalgia or something. Nostalgia. Like it, there's something very something. About yeah, it. A heavy about um,
0: it. Weightiness. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Exactly. And of course, by 1936, Freud is very sick. Um, mm. he is unable to travel.
0: Ah, Even right. so,
1: he he has you know he's been to this one trip to Athens when he was younger, mm. but mm. now it's a very kind of, I think it's very final that he's never going to be able to travel back again. Mm. And maybe when he was writing Future of an Illusion, there was still a possibility of him. Mm. Getting there again,
0: interesting, Um, yeah.
1: But we do, we do know that he was thinking about it, and what um, circling to the objects now. What what I we've done um, is that we do know that Freud, during all of his travels, he would go antique, antiquity hunting. (laughs) Um, It was a bit of a free for all in Athens, I have to say, at the time as well. And we do know that he purchased certain pieces, but we, as with most of Freud's collection, we don't know what these were. Um, so it it, it was a bit of, um, an exercise, I think, in finding these strands within the letter, um, and that can visually link and physically link to objects, uh, to Greek objects within his collection. And the other thing that we were looking at is uh, what you've mentioned as well, his very kind of big interest in um, ancient Greek literature and mythology. Mm -hmm. So putting these two strands together, the letter and his wider interest, I think we ended up with some grouping of objects. First of all, we did pull out um, a few of the books that he has in his library about Athens and about the Acropolis and the books about art and archaeology in Freud's library are illustrated. They're all beautiful. So they do sort of give the illustrations within the books, um, particularly those coming before 1904 as well, before he traveled there may give an indication of the imagery of Athens and the Acropolis that Freud would have come across before he actually witnessed it with his own eyes in reality. And again, anything that's published after this time or he acquired after this time within his library may give an indication of ways of him rethinking about his trip. Mm. Um, there are, um, interestingly, um, there are no kind of... Um, known photographs of the Acropolis within his prints collections or anything like that. So we we,
0: would, you know,
1: um, and when it comes to the objects, we looked a lot at his fascination, uh, with the goddess Athena. Yes, we do. We do have his favorite, uh, bronze Roman, uh, little Athena that he has not, that normally lives in the, in the middle of his desk. And that been
0: dis- about... displaced into the exhibition room.
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, with this as a starter, we started looking at other representations of the goddess Athena within his collection that have not been exhibited before. And I think my, my personal favorite ha- has to be this small terracotta um, seated female goddess or worshiper. Um, it's from the archaic period. Um, A very important part of life in ancient Greek was giving this sort of offerings to the gods for various reasons. Um, And the particular type of seated kind of woman on a throne is said to have been inspired by the Xoanon, the cult statue of the goddess Athena that very casually fell from the skies Uh, and it was actually, the Xoanon was kept in the Erechtheion temple which was part part of the Acropolis ruins, um, or we are looking a lot at the um, at, at the comparison that Freud makes with the Loch Ness Monster, and we identify all these little snakes within his collections. There's all these mm-hmm. um, sort of bracelets and jewelry depicting snakes, um, and we are looking at the mythology linking actually these enormous mythological snakes and the Acropolis. Because the um guardian animal of the Acropolis is a snake. Um okay. the first um sort of mythical king of Attica and Athens, um King Kekrops, is half snake, half man. Mm. Uh so and incidentally, of course, the guardian snake of the Acropolis um is an is it incarnation of the uh, of Erikthomios, which she. is again half snake. Mm half man, initially, uh, and sits on um, Athena's sort of shield in in many sculptures. So there are all of these mythological connections that one has to wonder, had had Freud known about this, were, were, were these associations made when he found himself sitting among these ruins. And I think bringing these objects together and thinking about this physicality, I'm also thinking about the Different way that Freud would have experienced the Acropolis, much different than the experience we would have today. Um, yes. because he would have been able to access those um those temples in a much different way than we can today. Uh, there wouldn't have been the same barriers, he would have been able to take in the physicality of the of the place in a different way. At least that's my my assumption and my kind of fantasy. Fantasy around yes, uh, yeah around it. Um but but yeah, I think in bringing together the objects, we really kind of tried to create this physicality and make up for gaps within our our knowledge um, and our maybe our understanding of of
0: um, his one trip. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean that's great. I mean, again, this, these these um these connections which uh, you know you can think of in a psychoanalytic sense that don't seem to be connected you know why the loch ness monster you know what connection does that have to uh, the acropolis well you know unconsciously we've got this link between the you know the snake the the um you know the the snake on athena's shield and the you know and um and so the you know that really helps us to think psychoanalysis i think really helps us to think about these um these kind of connections that exist somehow under the surface unconsciously that, mm-hmm. that kind of appear. I, I and mean, I guess that's one of the fascinations about um, about curating something like this is that we can take, because it's a, you know, we're in the Freud Museum and we're thinking kind of psychoanalytically, you know, you can make these associations which are there not just to kind of create a narrative, but to kind of, you know, pop ideas off of each other and to kind mm-hmm. of create almost kind of, new new kind of mini narratives new kind of uh, yeah. you know not not grand narratives you know but 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 little narratives in a way um and you know one of the things that I'm particularly fascinated by is your this choice of title and I think that you've already uh, the title of the exhibition I mean, you've already touched a little bit on that but it's the notion of traces really and um and you know we've often sat down and discussed haven't we the idea of tracing and things and and you know this kind of this this work that kind of Arbe Varberg does around survivals, things that return from the past and appear in the present in a distorted way, you know, or in a in a transformed way. Psychoanalysis, of course, deals with this as well. But this um this idea of, of traces, um, bits of things that remain, and also gaps, you know, like you said about that. Where is the photographic representation of Athens from Freud's trip? If this was such an important place for Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, Surely the question is, well, what's the significance in there being no visual record of it? I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's significant mm-hmm. in itself, right? Um, so this idea of, of fragments, uh, Marina, could you could you talk a little bit more about um, some of the the ways in which you brought out a few fragments, perhaps from kind of the archive, from kind of letters and postcards, these these kind of little traces, if mm-hmm. you will, of kind of memory and experience for us.
1: So I mean. I, I think that the starting point for me as well is that we um, and I think that's a fascination about this essay, right? And mm-hmm. about Freud's Freud's trip, that um, there seems to be this big question: what What did he really see? What did What did he really experience? And we we will never know. Only Only Freud will ever know that. Mm-hmm. And no matter what I say about objects or connections or fragments, we can never fully understand or, you know, God forbid, speak for Freud. Uh, but I think what we can try to do is bring together those little pieces, as you said, and put them together. I'm going to say something very simple, like a story. Uh, and for me, that's the fascinating part about this letter that is very, it's, it's open in the way it's written. It speaks to experiences that, that maybe, you know, most of us might recognize and that's not necessarily seeing an ancient ruin that completely. Kind of, uh, you know, fascinated, but it's like reaching this place that we've never expected we would be able to reach, both in terms of achievement and maybe of coincidence, as well. So I've tried to piece together this kind of story of how did he get there, just to give another layer of sort of not explanation, but rather kind of narrative, like mm-hmm. story, as I've said before. Um, I didn't mention before that in the actual letter as well, he did, um, he gives us the context about the trip and how he ends up to the Acropolis, which I think is very important to mention before we delve into the fragments, because the fragments found outside of the letter indicate uh, different different sorts of um, things. In the letter, he mentions um, how he, from 1895, he would go every summer. On a holiday with his younger brother, Alexander, um, and he they would mostly visit um, Italy as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and interestingly, he had gone to Italy like what twenty five times. Tom, yeah, but like- he only mm-hmm. but but in nineteen o four, for whatever reason, they choose to go to Greece um, for the only only time, uh, as you mentioned. But their destination isn't Athens; it's Corfu. It's the island of Corfu. And in order to get there, they have to go through Trieste. And when they stop in Trieste for a couple of days, an acquaintance tells them essentially, are you mad? Why are you even going to Corfu? It's going to be so hot this time of the year. There will be nothing for you to do there. You're better off going to Athens. And Freud writes that their initial reaction, even though we would expect, as you said, with all his kind of great interest in Greece um, and Athens, that he would be excited at the prospect, he writes that the initial reaction is that they feel depressed, Mm. uh, that both him and Alexander feel very heavy. It, It feels like Athens is out of reach. They don't have their passports with them. How are they ever going to make it there? It's out of the question. It would have been amazing, but it's never going to happen. Uh, and then he says that when the ticket office for the steamship, um, that they needed to take actually opens, they just make their way there as if, as if it was always the plan and they get their tickets and make their way to Athens. So that's in the letter. Now, Freud, when he was traveling, he would always send. Postcards, as in like one, two, three a day. It's like texting mm-hmm. his family almost. Um, and it was the it
0: was the same
1: to the extension that you wished intercom for his.
0: Um... Sorry for that interruption. I'm we're currently sitting in the Freud Museum office, so uh, the phone just went up. We do carry on. Marie.
1: Okay. Um, so during his um, trip to Greece, he would send postcards to his family. Um, mm-hmm. And they tell a more, they tell a different story in a mm-hmm. sense. So he does say in the postcards that there has been this change of plan, um, but there's no mention of, you know, him feeling in such a spirits or depressed. There's rather, I feel like excitement for the prospect of, of, of going to Athens. It's all an adventure uh, for okay. him and his brother Alexander. Uh, and he sends this very intimate kind of snippets of their trip towards Athens. Um, they, um, the ship would go through, uh, Brindisi, Ajay Saranda, which is, uh, I think now in Albania, um, Corfu for a bit, uh. Patras, and then it would circle all the way around the Peloponnese before reaching um, Piraeus, because I think the Lloyd um, ship officers wouldn't really trust the Corinthian uh, passage, which was quite recent as well at the time. Um, And he, he reaches Corfu and he writes to his family that it's the first time that he lays eyes on the Greek landscape. And the colours and everything looks beautiful. And he's walking around the streets um transcribing the street signs that he sees. Uh, and there's one of the that's that's one of my favorite fragments, if you will, mm-hmm. in the yeah, exhibition. Yeah. Um this um Oscar that he writes to his family that you can see his uh transcription of the word Xenodochion, which is um hotel essentially mm-hmm. in um in uh, in Greek. Uh, And he does mention within that postcard that actually it took him quite a bit of time to to transcribe uh, the street signs. Now, we also know at that time, you know, that Freud, as you said before, has a very good knowledge of of Greek. He studied it at Mm -hmm. school. Um, There is an anecdote about him actually keeping a diary in ancient Greek as a youth. So we do imagine a man that's like very, very well acquainted with, with the language and with the culture and with everything else. Yet we have this one postcard that says that he arrives there and he finds it like a bit difficult to write things down. Uh, then when he reaches um, Patras, I believe, uh, a couple of days before reaching Athens, he writes how the weather is rainy like home. So it's, it's all this very kind of small snippets that seem a bit off about his trip, right? So he cannot write Greek, like, or it takes him more, more time to write Greek. And then the weather is very rainy, even though he was warned that it's, it's going to be, you know, super hot. Um, and when he finally reaches Athens, there's this famous anecdote, which I absolutely love and I feel like feels this kind of feeling about something being slightly off together. Uh, Where he um, gets a cab driver to get him from the port to Pires to um, the hotel that they were staying at in the center of the city. And he tries to give him instructions in ancient Greek. And the poor man doesn't understand anything, obviously, and Freud tries to change his um, pronunciation and his accent. But he ends up having to write down the name of the hotel because he cannot Mm -hmm. make himself understood. Um, and again, it's another kind of, you know, disconnect with this idea of Freud being completely, um, knowledgeable of everything about, about Greece at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, and he reaches his hotel. And yet another fragment that comes a bit later, actually. It comes from a letter he wrote to Jung in 1909, reminiscing about his trip to Athens. Uh, and he mentions that during his trip, he's been haunted by the number 62, which is very disturbing because at the time, Freud uh, has a conviction that it is it relates to the age when he would die. And that's something that he explores in the Uncanny, that you mentioned no, yeah. before. But he says that the, you know, uh, the number of his hotel room could not have been 62 uh, because the um, building has two floors, but funnily mm. enough, it ends up being 31. So, half, again, of- <laughs> half of 62. So yet again, you have this one, you know, more fragment of showing that this trip within its Mm -hmm. two and a half days of its duration is, you know, you have more elements feeding into this feeling of derealization Mm -hmm. that he describes. Uh, But then you also have this fragment of him being a tourist and the person who's enjoying his holiday, a person who is enjoying his true good, very good coffee in Athens. And in the postcard that he actually sent at the time in 1904, while, while on the Acropolis, he says how it's raining and he's sitting outside the, um, closed museum, old museum of the Acropolis Mm -hmm. on the sacred, um, rock, Uh, and his brother Alexander is sitting right by him on an ancient marble throne. And they're gazing at these amazing sculptures by Vivius. Um and everything is so so beautiful. And in that postcard there's no mention of this kind of heaviness that comes mm. in the letter. Um and I I feel that alongside the objects, these fragments come together to tell like many, many stories. There's mm. not one one single experience. There's not mm. one way I think to understand um Freud's trip. And mm-hmm. It, it, it's something that changes through the years. Mm-hmm. In this postcard, he's, you know, he's a young man. He's there with his brother. Uh, he is open to something new and the experience I mean, one of the questions we got a lot, I think during the exhibition is why did Floyd only go there once? And my kind of completely unofficial reading of it, mm-hmm. um, is that the experience was so rich and so strong and so you know, so much that it could you know I don't know if I don't know if in his letter where he says that now he's too old to travel anymore there's a bit of
0: regret of not going back. Um Yeah, I mean you feel don't you that there's something about the you know, maybe there was as you said, there was so much affect attached <laughs> to this. So much it was so weighty somehow. Um that you know it reminds me of our um old head of learning ivan said that he had a friend who who would never eat bacon because the smell of bacon was too wonderful that could the taste could never like fulfill the smell you know it could never be as good as the smell it's like you can't ever go back to a place just because it would never be as good as how it was in the memory or something but you know there's, there's something there's something in that i think and you know, one there's a few things that well, there's an awful lot that came out of that, Marina. I think, um, I think one of the one of the things that stood out for me, and I just remembered a, another text that Freud wrote uh, called um, uh, "Those Wrecked by Success," which is mm-hmm. you know, yep. a collection called "Some Character Types Met within Psychoanalysis." And and you know, like Freud talks about there that that something when it's in the fantasy and when it's in the build-up can be very desirable, but when it actually happens, um, you know, you're confronted. Uh, you know, it, it makes me wonder whether that paper might not have been a way of working through this experience. You know, mm. I mean, he describes he describes the idea of someone who's always wanted a promotion or something and then their boss retires and they suddenly take on the boss's role and they're incredibly kind of depressed and then unable to work or something. Um, and, you know, or I can't remember the other references in there. There's a few. Um, he does it. He references Shakespeare, of course, in that paper. But... This idea somehow that while something is there in the fantasy and you can explore different possibilities of it, it's very very desirable. But actually, actually um, achieving it somehow that's the thing that brings on the guilt. You know, you can so you can see why this derealization had to happen almost. Mm -hmm. If this kind of suddenly all this unconscious fantasy of 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 over overachieving of, of taking over the father releases this sense of guilt because it's actually happened there has to be some defense against against that guilt yeah so that was one of the things this reminded me of that paper on those, rec, those and,
1: he, uh, and he does i think he he does mention his letter it. yeah yeah mm. this idea of wrecked by success
0: someone yeah, being yeah. wrecked by i mean what a great what a great idea that i mean it's so that's so psychoanalytic isn't it be careful what you wish for actually is another kind of as another kind of way of putting that you know um so that's one thing uh, that really came out of that, but I, I love the way you describe these possibilities of de- telling kind of different stories. That that these things can spark off kind of new ways of thinking, and and a, an experience in a way, again from a psychoanalytic um, position, an experience is never had when when the thing happens. It's always something that reverberates later mm-hmm. on, and is recast and reformed. You know, there's that ambivalence, you say about the um about the you know this joyful excited freud that that's writing postcards and, and being a tourist and experiencing all this beauty and then this this kind of older freud who's who's um older freud who's looking back in his 80s you know 80 years old writing this letter and perhaps all of that kind of nostalgia that weightiness has, has been kind of you know being placed back onto the experience itself you know the experience never. The memory of the experience changes the experience. I guess is what mm-hmm. i to say, and it continually is changing and refashioning. One, um, one particular fragment, one particular kind of um, part of this essay, though, that I know that you were keen to emphasise. Um, someone, in fact, who's kind of hiding in plain sight in a way throughout this essay and throughout so much of Freud's work. Um, one of the great kind of unsung heroes of Freud. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freud's only but hero. I use that word specifically, hero, because of the name of, of Freud's brother Alexander. Um, and and Alexander, I know was was someone that you wanted to kind of bring out, really, of this narrative and create a story. Um, give give him some spotlight, some limelight. So, um, <laughs> tell us a, tell us a bit about Alexander Freud's brother, Marina, who. Yeah.
1: So uh, I think, you know, to make this fragment a bit more fascinating, that uh, when, when we were looking in the, in the archive and researching for the essay, as you said before, there's no, not much visual documentation. Of course, there are the postcards that are heard at the um, Library of Congress uh, in Washington, um, which do depict like whether there's this one, so in Corinth or Corfu or different parts of their travel, but when it comes to actual photographs, photographic documentation, there is none. And then when we're looking in the archive, there's this one photograph of um, Alexander Freud hmm. in an unidentified place. Uh, and I I think I was sort of obsessed with the idea that, okay, this somehow may be relevant. And indeed, it is Alexander in um, Trieste. Oh. We don't know it if it's from that trip.
0: We don't know the year
1: we don't know the year but um it it could be and for me that was a very kind of big drive in in understanding it is it we have included the um the picture in the exhibition um, in in the postcards that Freud uh, sent it's very you know it is a shared experience he does mention as well that it's an adventure sort of um very much no I don't I don't want to mistranslate that. But he does mm-hmm. really indicate how part of it uh, the decision, the decision making is driven by Alexander as well. And I think it's very important to mention at this point that Freud was a very nervous traveler. Yes. Um. And he would, uh, according to his biographies, often rely on Alexander and later on his his son Martin to um, make his travel arrangements when it came to schedules and stuff like that. So we can imagine that the incident in Trieste, for example, uh, may have been quite um, difficult for him. And he may have relied on Alexander to make these arrangements and take these tickets. We we can, you know, Um, but I think very importantly, when, you know, Freud puts on, uh, puts on his favorite shirt to make his way uh, to the Acropolis on the day after the arrival, but But as he says in the postcard, he's not by himself, he's with his brother. Mm -hmm. It's just their experience. They're sitting there together. They, they are gazing at this together. And there's this very, very beautiful part of the letter towards the end, um, where he actually says that he might had said to Alexander, whether he remembers how, when they were young as children, they used to take all the same streets uh, to school every day and do the same excursions. And look at them now. They're standing on the Acropolis. Mm. And what would their father say about that? <laughs> so there is kind of this third um, element there. And it, it links back to the very, you know, you mentioned Alexander, the hero. And I I think we omitted mentioning that um, Sigmund Freud was the one uh, at the age of 10 to suggest the name Alexander for his baby brother, uh, inspired by Greek, um... Uh, king of Mm -hmm. the um, ancient kingdom of Macedon, Mm -hmm. Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of link through, and it's very important. And one of the first things that he mentions in the letter to Roman Roland is, oh, coincidentally, you have the same age as my brother, with whom I traveled at the time. And in the letter that he writes later on to a colleague, and I'll need to look up who the colleague was, um, Tom because I'm not bit unprepared I'm afraid So uh, it's he does mention again that the which I think I've said we've said in the beginning that the one thing that's relevant to Roman Roland in the letter is that he shares the same age as his brother Alexander so it's uh, you know I, I think when he when he ends up writing the letter it's sort of um a it, it's, it encapsulates his relationship to Greece throughout time, but also mm-hmm. his his relationship to that one trip that he took with with his brother, mm. which has now taken this form of looking back at how they grew up together as well. And they found themselves together on this very, very important moment standing on the Acropolis. And he does very interestingly mention as well that um he did not um ask his brother if if he felt the same way. So, oh, nice. because because since they were in Trieste, since that moment in Trieste, there was a certain kind of bizarre atmosphere between them, or at least that's, you know, that's Freud's reading of it uh, within his letter. But as I said, it's so interesting because this is not what comes out from the postcards, so that's that's why we, we know. We will never know. No. Um, but yeah, I do think it's it's. I I do picture them together on the, mm. on the um, Acropolis, as well.
0: I I think it's um I think it's a really lovely way of thinking about this letter as 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 a kind of letter as much to Alexander as it is to Roman Roland. Right? I mean, it's it's almost a kind yep,
1: of you've you know, <laughs> yeah, you've said it. Yeah,
0: it's almost a, like a you know, thinking back. Thirty odd years ago, thirty two years ago, were you thinking the same? I didn't ask you at the time, but we did. You also have an experience, <laughs> you know. There, there's a there's a sense in which, um, but this is how analytic transference works as well, isn't it? It's you know, um, in the analytic encounter and in all encounters, really. You know, if we think psychoanalytically, that people are more than the than who they actually are. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's kind of um, you know, particularly the analyst can takes on many different kind of. Uh, identities and, and references uh, throughout the analytic session, and even in everyday life. You know, why why not think that Re- Roland, in this process of Freud writing this letter, why not think that Roland some, somehow becomes um, Alexander as, as well as mm-hmm. Roland, as a composite figure almost. You know, and mm-hmm. and um and of course, you know, Freud had a, a very very close relationship to Roman Roland. On a level at which he he kind of describes them as almost polar opposites in their thinking, but they have a kind of um, a mutual respect, I think, and, a, and, a, and an affection, which is, mm-hmm. is, is it's, it's actually quite brotherly in a way, I, I think, um, to a certain extent. And um, so, yeah, I mean, Alexander, you know, the, the the final kind of the hidden the hidden character behind this kind of disturbance of, of acropolis this kind of drama on the uh, on on athens you know this kind of greek tragedy that reenacts itself in 1904 and then reverberates through the years and is finally written up in in 1936 i mean i think that's a really beautiful way of of kind of thinking um about that relationship and about the reason why this was was written you know freud saying oh well you know i can't produce anything and then suddenly you know this returned the return of the repressed, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to wrap up in a sec, Marina. It's been lovely to talk to you about this. But finally, I just wanted to make mention of um, of of the actual. We've talked about the lack of of um, of, of visual documentation uh, <laughs> in a way with trip traffics, but of course it was a very the exhibition itself was a very kind of visual. Um, a visual space a visual event really um not least of the fact these huge oversized photographs of athens from 1906 that greet you 1908 19- uh, 1907 1907 oh well it what was there? oh 1907 that, yeah. <laughs> so huge kind of oversized photographs from 1907 um of uh, the views from the acropolis walking up the stairs and then coming into the exhibition room and being greeted with this kind of you know, almost kind of the Acropolis in that kind of godlike position of kind of almost floating on the clouds. Mm-hmm. And that and that kind of visual element I know was very important to you. Um to that, that kind of drama and that and and mm-hmm. that kind of sensitivity to the visual visual culture. Um could you just say a few words about kind of, you know, how you thought about that and how you worked together with um our designer Sarah Sherwood to kind of utilize to, to bring that to, to bear on the exhibition itself?
1: First of all, just to say, it's great. I mean, um, I think it's great that working with someone who has also a background in visual arts, like Sarah does. um, And she's very, very, she's been so patient with me. Uh, I mean, I think there's something very personal there. On on one level, I'm Greek, I grew up in Athens. And for me, it was very important um to create a space reflecting not the Athens I know, but the Athens like fantasize in a way about the Athens mm. as Freud would have seen it. Um as I've said all these differences like the Parthenon would have looked completely different on the Acropolis. The city was just growing up as a capital. Um so we we it was very important to bring this element um in what, you know, Fragments and glimpses of what the Acropolis and Athens may have looked uh, like at the time of his visit, and I think it's very important. It was very important to me because, going back to his letter, nineteen thirty six, he that Athens would have looked completely, completely different than the Athens he would have experienced. So I really wanted the exhibition room to sort of emanate this one moment in time, this one, one, one trip that he took. so what we did is um, we looked at a lot with Sarah, a lot, lot, lot of photo libraries from our collections such as the uh, one, the, digi- the amazing digitized collection of the British School at Athens, uh, and then the um, Thessaloniki University Library, which is where we got these amazing images from uh, uh, photographer Frederick Bossonal that depict the Acropolis in such a dramatic and beautiful way um and the use of these kind of very blown up images also wanted to bring in as you said the drama the yeah. drama of encountering the acropolis and suddenly something very unexpected happening to you um in a way but also at the same time there are photographs that i feel really show the beauty of it and the calmness of it at the at the same time at least that was that was what we tried to do um, and with Sarah, we looked a lot at the, um, colors used in ancient Greek art. Um, and we've been within and beyond Freud's collection. So the red that we chose is a red that you will see, um, across Greek museums as well, being used to sort of showcase, um, their collections. Um, the font that was chosen as well for the exhibition, it was inspired uh, by ancient Greek fonts and typography. Um, mm. so it was, it was very, very research-based and Sarah did an um, incredible, um, work. And the idea was for this space to be very visual, as you said, and quite, I wouldn't say exactly immersive, but sort of give, give this glimpse of, you know, of Athens in 19- 1904 and yeah. Freud's Athens in a way. Uh, but again just a fantasy mm-hmm. no no way of knowing um and also where we felt um we were very lucky uh that the museum of the acropolis um the acropolis museum in Athens they um produced some cast copies of the of two wonderful objects um for the for the exhibition to sort of complement some of the narratives that we were where we're looking at, um, and again playing a bit with the idea of objects that Roy may have come across uh during his visits. Um, and we also used blown up images of uh the interior of the Erechtheion temple on the Acropolis, which is the one associated with all the that as well. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I can't um, have any of that at the Freud Museum. <laughs> oh
1: well, <laughs> but we 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 did want to yeah give this kind of give as much of a glimpse as possible into into what Freud might might have, have seen uh, and
0: experienced at the time. Just um leaves me to say a few final words. Actually, i mean, just about the the power of fantasy, about the kind of the notion of uh, how we read texts and how we recreate things. How the memory, you know, the Freudian memory, of course, is continually refashioning experience and, and I think that allows us that scope for uh, interpretation mm-hmm. um as a curator, um, to to kind of reimagine and reinvigorate collections and 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 juxtapose objects and bring out these new little narratives, little stories, as you were saying, these kind of new ways of seeing things and also how that kind of that impacts us as viewers, you know, what what the museum space is for you know it's not um it's not it's not a kind of a place for things that are kind of static perhaps and and kind of and an immovable but there's a continual kind of engagement between viewer and viewed between curator and curated between between uh object and subject that mm-hmm. takes place within the within the museum um that allows us to kind of keep keep on thinking and keep on imagining that kind of richness of experience that that um that that are exhibitions and, and museums and well particularly hopefully the Freud Museum, um, allows us to to explore and to offer. So um finally well Marina thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been lovely to talk to you um, and share all of that fascinating material and and take us through that kind of curatorial process as well as digging so deeply into some of the theory and the experiences that that Freud recounts. So thank you Marina very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Song.
0: You're welcome. Um, just to say then, uh, thank you all for listening. It's been a pleasure to have you um, listening to us, although that's going to be happening in the future, of course. So it will have been a pleasure for to have you <laughs> listening to us in a psychoanalytic sense. So, um, and uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be coming on again soon, thinking about um, another exhibition that we've got coming up um, which would probably be beyond by the time this is broadcast, um, which would be on Freud and Latin America. Just to say that if you didn't get a chance to see um, Tracing Freud on the Acropolis, we have a beautifully produced catalogue, um, which is edited by Marina and has contributions um, from museum staff, um, beautifully illustrated. Um, and you can buy that either at the Freud Museum itself or online through the Freud Museum shop. So, So do pick up a copy of that. And uh, look forward to uh, to you listening again to us on another um, on another episode of Freud in Focus very soon. Thank you. Goodbye.